Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 29th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Yesterday, the Public Accounts Committee spent some time talking about a printer. A printer that cost 1.8 million euro, but that was too tall for the building it was to work out of. The headroom, the press, um, it was stated that it was limited, and they subsequently sent a number of documents, email dated the 25th of April, including a one-page drawing which showed that the existing ceiling height of 2.5 mm metres and the recommended ceiling height of 3.16 uh, meters. However, at the time of writing this report, Peter Finnegan says, I have yet to establish how this information was processed within the houses of the Oireachtas Service. We know now that this printer cost a lot of money, a lot more money than had been thought originally, but it was a very big job. The job was broken into five separate lots. Um, one, one, and the five separate lots came to uh, a total figure, including VAT, of 1.369 million euro including VAT and it was broken down the plate making device which um, was 105,000 euro plus VAT job lot 2 was the main printer 848,000 plus VAT lesser trade in value of 40,000 for the old equipment the folding machine was um, uh, 100,000 excluding VAT the guillotines were 63,000 and the pile turner was 37,000 so that adds up, including VAT, to 1.369 million euro. And then the works that were carried out were uh, 229,000 plus construction rate of VAT, 260, given the cost of 1.6250 million to date um, on that work. And the OPW carried out additional work on the ventilation at a cost, including VAT, of approximately 220,000 to date. So um, the, the Secretary-General said that this matter was referred to in the Appropriation Accounts 2018, and they mentioned that there was a prepayment of cost totaling $1.793 million, which is greater than the figure we mentioned. Mentioned indeed, and uh, that was uh, the chair of uh, the Public Accounts Committee, Sean Fleming, speaking at uh, that hearing yesterday. Two of uh, the members of uh, the committee and local TDs, uh, for that matter, join us uh, this morning. Fianna Fáil's uh, Shane Castles and Sinn Féin's Melda Munster. Melda Munster, if I could uh, start uh, on this issue with you this morning, because we did speak about it uh, a day or two ago, and uh, you were wondering uh, if information had been withheld. This was an issue that was raised by a number of members yesterday. What what are your thoughts this morning? Well, I suppose the first thing to say, I'm not happy with the report that was furnished to us yesterday, and I'm not happy that the clerk of the doll is not coming in next week. Um, there's a couple of reasons. You have to ask where's the clarity here in the first place. Um, a couple of key lines in his report. The printer company had said that the room would need changes, you know, but that doesn't seem to have been 
passed on. If you look at... Um, he didn't he, seem to understand why it hadn't been passed yeah, on or why it hadn't been understood yeah, and or he acted said, on. He said mm. in his conclusions that the... Yeah, he said the requirements of the building and other regulations in relation to head height were neither understood nor examined during the critical early stages of the project. But he also said that he's yet to establish how this information was processed within the houses of the Oireachtas service. So that's totally unacceptable. There's no clarity here at all. But he also um, turns out, and this is what we discussed on Wednesday, that he did know about the cost of refurbishments when he came before um, the, the Public Accounts Committee in July, he had said that uh, he was advised that the estimate cost was 230. But I, I wasn't in the least impressed with his response after that. He said, uh, as you'll be aware, no discussion arose on the cost of the works in the course of my um, appearance. Now, that's, that's just not good enough. He did know about it. You know, and mm. he, he failed to disclose it. He, he omitted that information, you know, and that he knows that he's a senior official and he knows fine well that the, the focus and the remit of the Public Accounts Committee is in relation to public spending. It's the systems and the practices and the procedures that underpin public expenditure. And it's not just about how, you know, what is spent, it's about mm. how it's spent. And he, he failed to disclose that. Okay. You no, know, he wasn't forthcoming with the with yeah, the facts. And, and, and there was criticism, I think, across the board for a lack of candour uh, in terms hmm. of uh, his uh, original uh, appearance before you on yeah. this matter uh, last uh, July, wasn't it? Well, that's, that's yeah. it. And there, there okay. was proof that he did know about it. Well, what so, happened yesterday, Shane Castles? Uh, because the committee met uh, in private to begin with, uh, and uh, then there appeared to be a number of statements uh, from the members, but there did be, appear to be an opportunity to question Mr Finnegan. Um, good morning, Michael. Yeah, I think, you know, this this whole thing started uh, from an overall of machines. What we need is an overall of practices because um, there certainly has been just a load more questions emanating from yesterday's meeting mm. um, as a result of this report. And I think that uh, Mr Finnegan, who's clerk of the Dáil, uh, does need to come back before the Public Accounts Committee uh, to further clarify uh, the report that has been now submitted. Mm. Uh, because um, all we have is a situation where we have a seven-page report detailing what happened in the build-up uh, but it's only just left a load more questions as to who is actually accountable. This is what it all comes down mm. to. If we have a situation where um, a piece of equipment uh, was procured uh, to do a, a piece of work but ends up costing uh, double of what it should have cost, well then people do have to come in and ask the questions. Now there's been an opportunity provided to Mr Finnegan and also to the OPW who have a bad track record here as well. The OPW as many people would know would be responsible for public buildings mm. right throughout the country and both of those bodies have been given the opportunity uh, to send correspondence to the public Accounts Committee for a meeting on the 10th of December but I can see both bodies being hauled back in before the PAC mm. to actually answer as to what really happened and who was accountable. There's no point what's, what's wrong and what's festering here over a long period of time is that no one seems to be held uh, to bear for when money of substantial amounts uh, goes down goes down the, the drain hole mm. and that, that goes to the very core was of this issue. Overspend? Was that was uh, pretty much that amount not set aside for this work? 
Well, what's really at, 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 at issue here, Mike, is that, yes, there was money set aside mm. for the printing machine, which was needed to be, re- uh, to be replaced. What is infuriating people... But about 1.7 million was set aside. Well, there was, money, there was money saved from, from other aspects mm. and there was money put aside. But what's, what's really infuriating people is that when the procurement process is set out on, on the document that was given yesterday and you see that uh, tenders were received in, mm. in April, consideration of the contract was given on the 27th of April... Mm. Yet two days before that, Kamori, the company who made this machine on the 25th of April, had sent an email into the Oireachtas. Don't and f- think that'll fit. And flagged, don't yeah. think it's going to fit, guys. We've, we've, we've got a problem here. Big. And in this report, mm. it, it just uh, alludes to the fact, yeah. well, we don't know where that email was dealt with, who dealt with it, mm. was it dealt with, where it went. That's a pretty big question mm. that needs answering. If, it got, if the company who actually said that are supplying the machine, there's a problem here, mm. we don't think it's going to fit. Someone needs to answer for these questions. Okay, uh, we spoke the other day as well, Imelda Munster, uh, about uh, the fact uh, that staff might be looking for an increase in pay because of a change in work practice. Uh, This was clarified uh, to some extent. Uh, There is health and safety concerns, uh, apparently. Uh, And whilst this machine has never been switched on, it may never be switched on by all accounts. Well, firstly, just to pull you up on something for a change, Mike. <laughs> you, said, yep. you said to me on Wednesday that... Uh, it was reported. More. Yeah, yeah. That you mm. said they wanted to be yeah. paid more and that, that's not correct. But um, there's no... My colleague, um, Deputy Colnan, spoke with the, the workers in the print and there's no issues mm. in relation to, to pay regarding the printing. The, the, the workers say they're standing there, they're willing to operate the printer. Mm. Once they have the training, they haven't got the training and that there was no consultation with them. None of this was planned for it. You know, management mm. didn't consult with them or anything. But the printer is twice the size of a previous printer. Mm. But that they need the, a forklift to lift up the paper into the printer um, to load it, you know, and then they, yeah. they have to have the forklift again to turn over mm. um, and folding in that, you know, and that it's a different room and there's loads of different yeah. issues. But they, they want the, the, the training and any health and safety issues uh, addressed. And from, know, so. from, from what I understand of it today, you're right, and I was wrong, it's not a, a pay claim. Uh, and mm. uh, I, I don't mean to be a know-all, but the reports were that it was a pay claim. David Cullinan says he's spoken to the staff, and that's not the case, but that there, there are these serious health and safety issues that the paper has to be put into the machine by using a forklift. But there's also other issues, such as there isn't a fire exit and there isn't the space uh, to operate uh, the machinery in uh, the room that it's in. So uh, there is a question mark over as to whether this will ever be turned on, I take it. Well, that's, I mean, look, there's just a complete and utter hames of it made from get-go. You know, the, firstly, the proposed location, the OPD, or the OPW, rather, mm. had said the proposed location, the print room one, they wouldn't have advised, you know, it wasn't advisable to use that. So the print room two was chosen, and it appears now. The other thing, yeah, I forgot to mention, there was um, the workers had said lack of emergency doors. Like, mm. you know, so it, it just beggars belief, but... And That's Shane Castles, you, you were walking around That's the room yourself. Shane Castles is uh, particularly familiar with printing rooms, uh, and you walked around this one, uh, and uh, you were a bit taken aback by the lack of space that there yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, as, 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 as a lot of people would have known, I've, I, I worked mm. as 20 years as a journalist, and I was very au fait with walking around printing rooms, and I would have been over in that print room uh, on many occasions, and it's extremely tight, extremely mm. tight, and, and it's the one thing uh, that, that strikes you uh, when you walk into it. And so... Again, it goes back 
if you're going to do any big job, the people you, you normally talk mm. to, whether it's a council job out on the road or whatever, the people on the ground and get their sense of what's going to work or not work because yep. they're the guys that are going to be operating and, in the and, long term. And listen to what I tell you, you, you are familiar with printing rooms, more familiar than anybody else I know at this moment in time. Uh, you are familiar with uh, the type of a printer that's required to put out a, a daily newspaper, the Irish Times printer, uh, a weekly newspaper, the Meath Chronicle printer, etc., etc. Uh, does the Oireachtas need a printer of this size? No, that, that, that's another question. I mean, this was a serious piece of, of machinery. Um, I think I heard Philip Boucher Hayes describe it yesterday. So if, if it was Michelangelo, you'd be getting him to, to paint road markings, you know. So it does beg the question, why such a... Um, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that goes on during the day in the Oireachtas in terms of printing of order papers, parliamentary question papers, publications, so forth. But no, it doesn't require, in my mind, uh, something of this magnitude uh, because, you know, it can actually print double the amount of what's required every year in the Oireachtas to begin with as well. So I think that's another question in terms of when the assessment was being made and what was actually required for the job lots that Mm. are going out. uh, Well, then, really, do we need such a high-spec piece of machinery to begin with? And I think this is why... And your view is that we don't. Well, my, my humble view is that if, if, if we're only printing half of what the capacity is for a machine of that magnitude, um, you know, quite frankly, we obviously, we, we shouldn't be investing beyond that. But again, I think mm. these are questions that, and it's not just the clerk of the doll, yeah. there were several people mentioned in the report that were part of this process. They're not named, but I have a fair indication of who they are. And I think they need to come before the Public mm. Accounts Committee as well and for, to answer for their role in this whole process. And emails were sent to them so they can be easily identified. Easy, in this. I, I said that yesterday, yeah. the thing. There was no... Uh, reason whatsoever that the people who got those emails couldn't have been identified yesterday and they could have been brought to us but we will see in the course of time and I'm sure this is all going to come out in the wash. Okay, let's finish on this issue with what might be the crunch uh, or at least for the time being because I have a feeling there's more to come. Uh, We were talking about a a million euro printer then we were talking about a 1.3 million euro printer and now we're talking about a 1.8 million euro printer. Imelda Munster, how much do you think this is going to cost? Well, I mean, it said in relation to the OPW cost, they have them down as 195,000, but they said that 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 figure hasn't been settled yet. So it could be a hell of a lot more. Mm. But you're looking at, as it stands now, you're looking at um, just below 1.8 million. But, just uh, that, but there's, that, there could be more. The storage well, isn't included in that. There's some, uh, some, some of the costs presented report, to you have yeah. that applied, some don't. That, and that report yesterday didn't include um, the 12,000 storage uh, cost as well, but the the that printer wasn't actually scheduled to be changed until 2021. That's another thing. So that's why we want uh, the back, the clerk of the doll, the doll, and others back in because, as I said, you know, the the remit of the public accounts committee is the, the you know how public money is spent in the systems, facts, and procedures. But this clearly shows, and I said this yesterday, there's been a breakdown in this process that has cost upwards of a half a million overspend. And that should have been forthcoming, and that's why we need them back in. And that's a half a million mm. conservative estimate. It could be a hell of a yeah, Well, I'm sure there's some builders who aren't complaining. I'm sure there's a storage company up in uh, Ballymount that uh, is probably uh, not too unhappy. Uh, but uh, I suppose that's uh, the way of the world when it's somebody else's money and uh, you've uh, the 
cheque in front of you to sign, uh, it's easily done. Uh, we'll leave it there and hope uh, to come back to you on this issue uh, when uh, the clerk does uh, return to Imelda Munster uh, next month. Uh, but thanks uh, for joining us. Before you leave us uh, this morning, let's talk about a, another issue that was raised at the Public Accounts Committee uh, that may have a, a bearing on some of our, our local listeners who are working in Tara Mines. Uh, and uh, this is uh, to do uh, with revenue who were in front of you yesterday because uh, there was more to the meeting uh, apart uh, from uh, the cost of uh, the printer. Uh, wh- what uh, kind of a, a, a hit are the workers in Tara Mines expected to take next year, do you think? Yeah, thanks Michael. Yeah, the, as I said, our main witness yesterday was actually the chair of the Revenue Commissioners, Niall Cody and the main issue that I raised with him is the fact that in the next uh, week or so uh, tax credits for 2020 are going to be issued and some 600,000 workers across the country are anticipated to get hit on what's called flat rate allowances. Uh, teachers are going to get hit, uh, shop assistants are going to get hit and in my hometown of and some 620 people employed in Tara Mines are liable to get hit and it's going to probably hit them to the tune of €1,312 per annum. Mm. Now some of these guys would have been entitled under pay agreements to a wage increase next year. That's going to be wiped out if this is implemented. I invited Mr Cody, as I did to the Minister Mm. of Finance two weeks ago, to come down into the mine uh, with me and the uh, the unions in Tara Mines uh, because if they're going to make an adjudication on disregarding certain allowances that Mm. they have at the moment with a better better sure go down and actually see the conditions that are working in, as opposed to doing a desktop study. Which it's is a lot of money, isn't it? I mean, you're talking about a hundred euro short in uh, your take-home pay every month. It is a lot of money and this is an agreement that has been in place going back to the, to the late 80s, 1990 mm. and I actually had all of the old correspondence between Revenue and Tara Mines mm. with me yesterday. I showed it to Mr Cody and as I said, if they're only just doing a desktop study in terms of what is an allowable expense mm-hmm. for, a, for a miner and remember this is the biggest mine in Western Europe. It's a primary industry. It's the only major mining operation left in Ireland mm-hmm. and there's 600 people, over 600 people employed there. If there was an issue with a mine as I said yesterday, there'd be a line of politicians outside Tara Mines with the RT cameras wanting to talk about this is a big issue for these people employed okay. there and I, I've made this point to Mr Cody that more work needs to be done on this But you don't bring any good news to us this morning It doesn't It doesn't mm. look very good from what the um, from mm. what the Chair of the Revenue was going saying yesterday and what's worse is the fact that the Minister of Finance and the Taoiseach and I've got them both on the record on the dawn the last two weeks are playing this off the Taoiseach said, said it's nothing to do with me it's only got to do with the Revenue but I really just wish it had go away All right. Not great leadership Okay We'll leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us as well this morning. Shane Castle's uh, Fianna Fáil TD for Meath West. Melvin Munster, by the way, is a Sinn Féin TD for Loud, and they're both members of the Public Accounts Committee. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, it is Friday morning, uh, but uh, because uh, we've piggybacked uh, that great piece of American marketing, it is what's called Black Friday in this country now as well, which uh, means uh, that you better hurry to get uh, the bargains before they're all gone. Uh, let's talk about this with Duran Sweeney, Head of Corporate and Stakeholder Communications with uh, the CCPC. That's uh, the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission. A very good morning to you, Darren, and uh, thanks for joining us. Is there reason to be sceptical over this? Um, well, I think there's a reason to be always cautious. Um, and I suppose what we're out to is talking about, about what you need to know, um, especially if you're making a big purchase. So mm. if you're buying you know, a big electronic good, it's not making anything in a hurry and making sure, firstly, you're making the right decision, but also as well, too, that you know your rights. And, and there's a big difference, especially when you buy online, between buying online versus buying in the shop. Okay, and maybe that gives reason to be cynical because there is this pressure on that all of the bargains will be gone. You've got today, it's Black Friday, and uh, the pressure is on. There's bargains there. If you're slow about it, uh, you'll miss out. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And as you said, the pressure is definitely on. Although they're getting earlier and earlier. I heard earlier in the week, uh, people are advertising as Black Friday starting weeks beforehand. Mm. But yeah, there is a sense of, of if you don't buy today, you'll miss out. Um, okay. And also this idea that, you know, that because something's discounted, it's the best price. Um, it's not necessarily always the case. Mm. So, um, so being cautious is probably the important part. Okay, and I'm sure a lot of people will be in the shops and the shops will be busy. But did I hear that a, a lot of people will be buying from uh, their desktop, sitting in their offices at around 10 o'clock, I think is the busiest time of the day this Black Friday? I believe so, yes. I mm. think it will be the most productive hour, I'd say, in offices <laughs> across the country. <laughs> it depends on um, what you call productive, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm. But yeah, absolutely. I, I look more and more online, I suppose, because it's easier and the, the time frames are, are easier to manage as well. Too. A lot more people are buying online uh, versus in the shops. And there's, there's a, a big difference in your, in your rights. So, for example, if you buy something online, you mm. can return it if you change your mind. If you buy in a shop, something and you change your mind you're not guaranteed to be able to return it it's down to the store policy mm-hmm. so the simple things that that do make a difference especially as i said when you're making a big item price um and as well as too now that we have the internet we have a lot of different options there's a huge um variety and choice um so the other thing that we would think is very important is that you understand if you're buying from a european business versus a non-european business mm. because it's extremely important and, and something we're seeing is more and more people are buying from China or um, America or places like that and there is a, a big difference um, it may be a better price it may appear a better price mm. but ultimately it may not well this is the warning that revenue is giving to people isn't it uh, that it might yeah. seem very cheap uh, but uh, you may end up paying in the long run absolutely well I mean you have to consider VAT and it depending on, on the value at excise and that's what revenue we've been talking about but on, and on, on, under EU law you're required to be told about these things before you, you pay the price Whereas with, if you buy from, say, China, it, it may be the postman arrives at your door and says, mm. right, you're going to have to pay this extra amount. So that's a big, a big, big difference. But also, so it's simple things like, you can, as I said, when you buy online, you can return it if you buy from Europe. Um, if you buy from China, you may not have the option or America. And particularly, as I said, if it's a big item, a big price item, um, or if something goes wrong, you just have less options. And when it arrives, it may not be what you expected or wanted Absolutely. or you just don't like it. Can you send it back? Uh, n- not no. Uh, if, well, if you buy it from Europe, yes, absolutely. You have 14 days from the day you get it. If you buy from outside of Europe, it's it's all down to the store terms and conditions. So it's what they're prepared to do, and, and it tends, especially during sale time, mm. um, a lot of stores tend to change their terms and conditions for refunds. But if you buy online, it doesn't matter what store policy is. Um, you're entitled to 14 days from the day you receive the goods and you've 14 days then in addition to return the goods to get a, a full refund. All right, and uh, there are people out there uh, who are aware that uh, people are, are very eager and anxious uh, and uh, possibly vulnerable uh, as well. Uh, and uh, I suppose uh, there's uh, reason to be careful when you're on the internet at any time, but particularly today. Absolutely, absolutely. And I suppose there's another point there that there's a big difference buying from an individual versus buying from a business you have a lot more options. If something goes wrong or something's not as described or your money disappears and you don't get it, you have a lot more options if you're buying from business. If you're buying from an individual, there's someone selling on on websites as a, as a person, apart from going to the guards, you have very little recourse. So that's one of the big things. Also, just checking it. It's very easy to set up a website these mm. days. So doing checks, particularly, as I said, if it's something that's high value, check around, check reviews. Um, if the price is very different from from other prices, I'd be very concerned about it. We, we have an infamous saying here of, if it's too good to be true, it usually is. So just being really careful if it looks too good to be true. And is it really a, a bargain if it was, let's say, €70 euro last month, uh, but uh, then went up to €100 euro and is back down to €70 euro now, uh, and they say it's gone from 100 to 70 
Um, well, in terms of is it a good deal, probably not. And that's mm. for checking around and seeing versus everybody else, is this much of a discount compared to it? In terms of the law, um, it is quite. It's, it, it doesn't specify exactly the, the rules around um, reduced prices. How we would look at it is if you are advertising it at you know 50% off and you're saying last week it was 100 euro and you ran, ran the price for a week at 100 euro, mm. you should only run the discounted price for a week. So you shouldn't be running for a month saying this is 50% off when you only ran it for a week last um, at the full price. Okay, don't get overly excited, don't be giddy, take your time uh, and be a bit sensible. There's advice as well on ccpc.ie for people. Okay, Duran, we leave it there and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Duran Sweeney, Head of Corporate and Stakeholder Communications with the CCPC, the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission. Michael Reed on LMFM. Dundalk native, former member of uh, the Defence Forces and ISIS bride, Lisa Smith, together with her two-year-old daughter, Rakaya, could be back in this country in uh, the next day or two. This is according uh, to the Irish Daily Mirror, which is reporting that Department of Foreign Affairs officials spent Wednesday in high-level meetings finalising details of her return and also reports on Turkish media who are saying that Lisa Smith and her daughter will be back in Ireland as soon as today or tomorrow. The paper says her arrival is imminent and it could be this weekend and certainly will be in the next few days. Let's talk about this with Independent Senator Jared Crockwell himself, a former member of the Defence Forces and a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme. I suppose one thing is for certain and that is that Lisa Smith is Lisa Smith's return is now inevitable. Uh, good morning, Michael. Good morning to your listeners. Yes, uh, Lisa Smith's return is uh, inevitable with her daughter. Uh, that's that's for certain, I believe. Okay. Uh, and I take it that's a, a good thing, given uh, the concerns uh, that uh, the UN rapporteur had for her uh, physical and mental health. Uh, yeah, listen, I understand the uh, rapporteur. Uh, I understand the concerns people have for both her physical and her mental health. But we must also have a concern for the people of the country. We must also have a concern for uh, what she may or may not have been up to. And we must also have a concern for the likelihood that she may engage in uh, radicalisation of young people when she comes home. So, I mean, it's, not, it's far from cut and dried um, and it's far from simple. It is certainly far from simple, uh, especially when you take in what you've just said and what uh, the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris said yesterday, which is uh, that Garda have a duty to protect her. Yes, the Garda will have a duty to protect her, but that duty will also be tempered with a duty to protect the rest of the nation. And um, that does not come cheap. Um, uh, She will require quite a lot of um, minding, or watching, depending on which side of the argument you're coming from. But uh, she simply, I do not see a situation where she'd be able to step off a plane in Dublin Airport. And oh, no. I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry, we lost you there, Jared. Uh, I'm sorry, you were saying you don't believe that she'd be able to step off a plane in Dublin Airport? Yeah, walk through duty-free, Michael, and mm. um, come out, pick up her duty-free and go home as if she had been on holidays. It's not that simple. Okay, it's so re- really rather serious. When she uh, does eventually return to this country, uh, h- how do you think that will happen? Uh, will it be to Dublin Airport? Um, I think it will more than likely be Dublin Airport, but I think it, she will not be coming on a commercial flight. 
Um, I can't see that happening. Um, she may be brought in on some sort of a, um, a chartered flight, which again, uh, people may have their misgivings about, but I think it's safer overall that she would be brought back herself and her daughter uh, and looked after. From a health point of view, mental health and physical health, I think all of that has to, to be taken into account. But as I say, once we get through the practicalities of getting her on Irish soil, then there are lots of questions to be answered regarding what she was up to and um, how she finished up being radicalised in the first place. Okay. Uh, what kind of a, a, a journey would she take out? Would that be um, a flight chartered specifically to take her and members of uh, the Defence Forces? Would it be the government jet? Uh, what kind of cost would we be talking about? I'm not sure, Michael, being totally honest about it. Mm-hmm. I don't see the government jet being used in this case. And if there are Defence Force personnel out there uh, in an advisory capacity, uh, I would believe they will probably make their own way home. I think she will be the responsibility of the Garda Síochána in the first instance and not the Defence Forces. Okay. Uh, but uh, obviously a person of interest, as uh, the Gardaí have said. So uh, would she be detained at Dublin Airport or, or would she be taken a- away and uh, held for some time in uh, another location? Uh, I believe she should be arrested the moment she arrives in the state and um, taken into custody uh, so as she can be questioned by all arms of the intelligence service in Ireland, the Guard, the Chicago, the um, uh, Defence Forces and the Department of Communications. Uh, I, need all, I, I believe all of them need to be involved in order to establish exactly what she did and did not know uh, who she knew, when she knew them, what, what she engaged in before she left. Mm. Uh, on what basis might she be arrested? What charges uh, would she be facing? Well, I think uh, uh, terrorism is one charge that uh, is open to the uh, Gardaí to bring charges under. So offences against the state um, would probably cover that. Which state? Uh, but, uh, well, offences against this state because uh, she, she was uh, radicalised in this state from what we understand. But, um, I mean, that is really an issue for Drew Harris mm. and his team, and I'm sure that they have uh, gone through the legislation. I know that Minister Flanagan has said the legislation that we have is robust enough to be able to deal with this situation. So uh, I believe Minister Flanagan in that. I, I believe that a Department of Justice have put a lot of work and a lot of thought into this repatriation. Yeah, uh, but uh, Lisa Smith says otherwise. She says she wasn't radicalised here or elsewhere. Well, I mean, Lisa Smith has spent a number of years with the most radical, heinous, uh, brutal people in the world. Uh, So I wouldn't hold a lot of sway over Lisa's word on what she did or did not do uh, until such a time as she's thoroughly debriefed. Hmm. Well... The question uh, remains, uh, on what basis do you detain her? I I think we can detain her on the basis of engaging in terrorist activities. Um, And, I mean, even at the the most limited level, um, she was engaged in terrorist activities. She did leave this country to join with a terrorist group. And I think at the end of the day, there there is no getting away for that. So so I do think the legislation is there to allow the state to at least take her in for questioning. Hmm. Uh, Well, surely she's innocent until proven guilty. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree mm. with you more, Michael. I couldn't agree mm. with you more, but we won't know the level of innocence or guilt until such a time as she is thoroughly uh, debriefed by members of the Garda Shia who are specialists in this area. But, I mean, uh, you're making findings uh, against her, but, uh, I mean, as I understand it, uh, from what we know for certain, uh, she hasn't done anything illegal. Uh, it's not an offence to travel to Syria or to live in Islamic State? No, it's not an offence to travel there, but it is an offence to engage in terrorist activities. And I think uh, I, I am not, and you are not, and uh, most of your listeners are, are not uh, equipped to determine whether she has or has not engaged in these activities. There is merely a suspicion at this point in time that must be addressed in the interest of the security of the state. Mm. Well, undoubtedly, people are, are concerned for exactly those reasons. Uh, but uh, because of those concerns, people will wonder, uh, what if um, Lisa Smith says otherwise? Uh, surely she has a constitutional right, like anybody else, uh, to be at liberty if there are no charges brought against her. Uh, absolutely. She has uh, an absolute right to uh, be at liberty if there are no charges. Uh, but I think, Michael, uh, given where she has been and who she has been involved with, even if she is at liberty, she will remain a person of interest for many years to come. And that will take uh, additional Garda resources uh, to uh, observe uh, her movements, to observe who she engages with. Uh, so it, this is going to be an ongoing problem for a number of years to come. Mm. Even 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 if there is no charge that we can bring against the woman, and you're dead right. I mean, she is totally innocent until such a time as there is evidence to prove her guilty. But the one thing I am certain about is our Garda Shirkana have uh, long, long arms when it comes to investigation, and I believe they will have whatever evidence they're able to bring back from Syria, from Turkey. Uh, but I do think, in the interest of the child, it's important mm. that she's brought home as soon as possible. We can deal with the issues mm. when she is at home. Michael, this is a problem right across Europe. There are people who engaged with ISIS being repatriated to all European countries. And that is, that's going to be a serious problem for Europe in the near future. Some of them may still be radicalised. Some of them may be just coming home having learned that it wasn't the right thing to do. And do you believe that Lisa Smith will be in danger when she returns home uh, and that uh, if she's free to go back to Dundalk, let's say, that the Gardaí will have two jobs uh, to look at? One is to protect her and the other is to monitor I totally agree with you, Michael. There are, there, there are lunatics in every country and there are people who will take grave exception to the fact that this woman is coming home and her own personal safety and the safety of her child. Um, all of these will kick in. We must remember the child has uh, the potential to claim three nationalities uh, if indeed the child is hers and I have no way of knowing whether that child is or is not. But if it is, it could claim to be Syrian, it could claim to be UK or it could claim to be Irish and uh, it's up to the mother to determine which of those nationalities she wishes to claim. Okay, well I know there's a a family and a dog very anxious to meet uh, that little girl uh, but uh, the reports are in Turkey at least uh, that uh, she'll be deported or repatriated or whichever uh, phrase you wish to use uh, today or tomorrow but in the coming days it it would seem. Uh, We have to leave it there for the moment though and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme as always. Independent Senator Jared Crockwell. Thank you.
Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and text messages uh, that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. Jim in Navin is one of those, and he says the printer is just another example of the incompetence in the cosy cartel in Leinster House. Waste of taxpayers' money, no one to be sanctioned over it, just like the children's hospital, yet no money can be found for those in need. Mm. Liz from Drada can't quite believe it, Michael, that they are going to need a forklift to load the paper onto the machine. That kind of gives you an idea of the size of it, says mm. Liz. Mm-hmm. Of course the workers would have to get the training for that, Michael. Are they expected to drive the forklift? Or how are they going to actually do their printing? She wants to know. Yeah, I think that's what the workers want to know, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't make this up, Michael, says Louise. Why on earth do they need such a big piece of machinery in Leinster House? It's not a printing factory. Mm. Someone needs to be held accountable for this. It really does uh, seem like a waste of money. And we hear it hasn't even been used. Mm, hasn't been used and we still don't know how much it is we know it's probably uh, at least 1.8 million euro uh, but uh, it's quite possible that it'll be more than that I know another this is a listener almost 2 million euro spent Mm. and the printer hasn't been used Michael you have to wonder will it ever be used it seems that there is going to be some challenge trying to access it crazy also listening in that there was no consultation with staff. You'd expect if they were going to bring in a piece of machinery of that size that they would think that staff would need to have some training on it. Photocopiers at the best of times, even normal ones, can be hard to manage without getting the necessary training on them. Yep, I think that's probably true. We'll hear a little bit more about this printer, the cost of it and indeed how it ended up being such a debacle. Uh, We'll uh, begin... Uh, a number of contributions uh, that were made uh, at uh, that hearing of uh, the Public Accounts Committee yesterday. Now with Sinn Féin's David Cullen. I, I spoke to some of the staff as well, so there are no HR issues with the staff. Let's be very clear about that. There are no HR issues in relation to the operation of this printer. There are training issues. It's a printer that's twice the size of any printer the staff have ever used before. They actually need to use a forklift in a very tight space to load up um, the, uh, the, 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 the paper. It has to be done in, in, in the turn machine that turns the paper first in a forklift, brought in, loaded up, printed one side, forklift brought back out again to a different room and brought back again. And no consultation with the staff, none whatsoever. So they talk about the training hasn't taken place yet. So this was a mess from start to finish. Absolute start to finish, this was a mess that cost us more money. And yet, despite all of that, we weren't informed when the accounting office was here. For me, that's not good enough. The contract was signed on the 31st of May. Uh, On the 30th of May, just the day before, the facilities units in the House of the Oireachtas service contacted the OPW, just the day before they signed the contract. At the same time, it was known that there was a headroom issue. Um, or it had at least been brought to the attention. Um, that, those two dates for me, I, 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 I want to know 
why the, the headroom issue wasn't uh, wasn't um, brought to the OPW's attention. I mean, I find it insulting because what we've done here is applied the children's hospital approach to public procurement. Let's buy it and stuff it in. Uh, it's the other uh, sentence in it. I will stand behind a public service and I will not stand behind their mistakes, but I will not have been demonised either in the, in the guise of praising the private sector. In relation to this report... I I, I, Honestly, I mean, that's a total misrepresentation of, of, okay. of what I'm saying. I, I, well, I, I, I'd be the first to apologise if this is a misrepresentation, but what I heard was being said in the private sector, in the world that operates in the private sector, this yeah. simply wouldn't Employers wouldn't tolerate such incompetence. Can I just, can I try again? Can I try again? Let the deputy continue. I am, in context, I'm I'm not um, standing behind any mistakes in the public sector. I'm putting in context. Let's not demonise one sector. I've walked the floor of that building, of that print room many times. Um, Some 25 years ago when I started as a student journalist, one of the things you're brought on uh, at the time was, I remember walking the old print facility in Dulier Street in the Irish Times, uh, and that was, that's, as I said, 25 years ago. And I remember at the time uh, when the Meath Chronicle were building their new print facility and it was plainly obvious that you weren't going to be able to do it in the old confines of the old print room in the old and they went and built a new facility. The print facility over the cross the road is extremely tight. It's extremely limited as it is in terms of height requirement. I wonder what discussions took place with the actual men themselves that operate that facility over there. They're the expertise. Mr Finnegan had said, uh, he was asked about why was there an increase of 9.7 million and he said to answer the deputy's question, the increase of 9.7 million resulted from a strategic decision that we did because there was funding available in the final year of our three-year budgetary cycle. And the next line then is this very, very casual when you read it back. Uh, the service basically recommended to the Commission that we bring forward ICT expenditure. So that in itself, just in the casual way, look at, let's blow this on ICT expenditure. That would hint that this was a rush job, in effect, um, and that would most definitely explain the complete not our aims that's been made of it. Members of uh, the Public Accounts Committee, Sinn Féin's David Cullinan, Catherine Murphy of uh, the Social Democrats, Fianna Fáil's Mark McSharry, Catherine Connolly, who's an independent TD, Shane Castles of Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster concluding that there. Michael, there's still lots of comments coming in on this topic. Uh, Jack says, an interesting one, will they now need to purchase a new forklift, Michael? <laughs> or maybe two, one to take the paper out and then one to load the paper in again. Mm. And then another listener says, are the office staff expected to operate the forklift or will they be advertising now for a forklift operator in Leinster House? Has Mm. that all been included in the costing? Yeah, a a small person, I think, uh, to fit into the small space that is uh, available. (laughs) A small forklift uh, operated by a small person. Michael says another listener in the name of God they can find money for that machine why can't they find money for the hospital it's a joke and that comes in from Mary from Drogheda well probably because they're spending money like it's going out of fashion Uh, I mean there were some crazy stories this week like the 750,000 euro that was lost 
because somebody was trading in the wrong currency. They thought they were trading in a different currency and lost €750,000 before they could do anything about it. Uh, there was nearly two billion. That's nearly two thousand million. Uh, in fact, it was one thousand eight hundred million euro that's been lost on the money that we're holding for Apple. We won't know uh, how much the barristers are being paid uh, to fight the case to make sure that we don't get the sixteen million or fourteen point two billion as it is now from Apple uh, because uh, they've privacy issues. Well, Fra- Fran says it's easy to pay out millions, Michael, when it's not your own money. And he feels it's time for the two major parties to go. And I'm sure Fianna Fáil are hoping that Election Day never comes. Mm. I don't think Fran. that's fair. I think uh, if it was my money, um, I wouldn't find it easy to spend it. But I'd probably spend a little bit more than the 1.8 million. I'd probably, I think I'd go five <laughs> if it was somebody else's money. For the measuring tape, uh, yeah, For the measuring <laughs> tape, yeah, yeah. And the forklifts. Uh, Anna, Anna mm. says that... Um, in all of this, isn't it good that we have the Public Accounts Committee, Michael? Otherwise, we may never get the full story on the printer. Well, I think it's good that we have uh, journalists and there was a freedom of information request uh, that was uh, put to the Oireachtas uh, by uh, a freelance journalist that resulted in this becoming public. So there you go. It's the journalists. Praise mm-hmm. the journalists. Black Friday, if we can move on to that, Michael. Yep. Uh, good to see, Michael, that local shops are also cashing in on this Black Friday hysteria, as this mm-hmm. listener describes it, by operating discounts too. I think people should try and get out there and support the shops, especially if they are offering good value too because you get, uh, you're able to go back there if there's a problem you know, to your local Mm -hmm. store. Uh, Kieran says, you wonder do you really get bargains when you shop on Black Friday? Your guest is right, people should be very cautious. I think so, yeah. Mm. Uh, just on Lisa Smith and your interview there with Senator mm. Gerard Crockwell, Tom from Dundalk says, uh, listening in, and I think your guest is right, they will need to, an eye will need to be kept on Lisa Smith to ensure that she has changed and that she will not be trying to influence or radicalise others. I think it's very unfair, says another, that Lisa Smith can be just brought back to Ireland and we are expected to just accept her here, even though there are fears that she may not have changed her ways. Mm. That's a flavour. So where should she go? I mean, this is the next question. I mean, I can understand that people are uh, cautious, uh, they may be afraid, uh, they may have concerns, uh, they uh, may wonder uh, if uh, there's a security threat, if there's a threat to Lisa Smith or to her daughter as a result of all of this. Uh, But uh, what do you do otherwise? Uh, If you don't bring her home, do you leave her in Turkey? Is it Turkey's problem rather than our problem? She uh, is an Irish citizen. Her daughter certainly is an Irish citizen. Uh, But uh, as you say, we leave her on that note for the moment. And uh, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, yesterday, uh, the Thornister, Simon Coveney, uh, told uh, the doll that politicians and election candidates need to, to be pulled up on far-right comments which incite hatred. This comes ahead of an appearance by the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission before a UN committee. The commission has published its own independent report on how Ireland is living up to its international human rights obligations to combat and eliminate racial discrimination. It's made some 155 recommendations and uh, 
they will be in the spotlight, as I say, on Tuesday and Wednesday of next week when the Commission uh, will be asked questions about how Ireland is performing. Uh, and indeed, uh, in its report, it is highlighting some of the problems that the tarnished made. It pol- particularly points towards Peter Casey's comments about travellers in uh, the 2018 presidential election and also about comments made by Noel Grealish, an independent TD in Galway. Comments uh, which uh, this report describes as prejudicial and uh, discriminatory about African economic migrants. Uh, We uh, hope uh, to be able to speak with Salome Mbugwa, who is a commission member with the Irish Human Rights Equality Commission. Uh, but uh, I think uh, we've a problem with uh, the line there, so we'll move uh, to another issue now. Uh, Yulita Clancy uh, is on the line, I think. A very good morning to you, Yulita, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, you'll know Yulita Clancy as a spokesperson for the Mead Peace Group uh, and indeed some other local organisations. Uh, but uh, her family have a, a reputation far and wide. And Yulita, you're just back from New York. Tell us what, what you were doing there. Yes, good morning and, and, and thank you, Michael. Um, yeah, no, I was over there because the Irish uh, Consul General in New York held uh, a very, very interesting and historic event, which was a centenary celebration of the first appointment by the first Doyle of a consul anywhere in the world, and this was to the USA. And it happened to be my late grandfather, and he was called Jeremiah Fawcett at the time and was then Dermot Fawcett. And um, that was in 1919 that he went over, shortly after de Valera went over. Mm. And um, <laughs> my granddad was uh, more or less in, in charge of trade and a whole lot of other things when he was there and worked very, very energetically to try and get industries, Irish industries and Irish exports to America and improve trade and shipping mm. between the two countries. Uh, and an opportunity to celebrate uh, Irish representation in uh, the United States, uh, that representation uh, being made, as you say, by your grandfather. He was there from 1919 uh, to 21, was it? Yes, just to when the truce happened then, he was recalled at, uh, not long after that and he took up a position, he was offered a position with the peace treaty negotiations as an economic dev- advisor, which he kept until the end of January and then he was appointed to the provisional government in the civil service of the economics ministry there, which he held for a couple of years. Um, but it was mainly, I would say he was chosen to take that consulate because of his history. He had a long background in industrial development in Cork. He was secretary of the Cork, which was called the Industrial Development Association at the time. That led to the IDA. And he had been deported by the British military in 1915 for some speeches he was making. And he took the opportunity to go to New York then. And he met Henry Ford. And along with three others, he brought Ford to Cork, which Mm. was, you know, a major employer in Cork. But I think it was through his contacts there, as well as his kind of credentials in the Sinn Féin movement at that time, that drew his atten- drew the attention of the Doyle cabinet to him. And they, like, if you go to the cabinet minutes in the National Archives, you'll see, get Fawcett. You know, it's just telling them to go and get Fawcett immediately mm-hmm. and bring him up. And he had to give up his job in Cork and went across and was away for two years mm-hmm. and um, did a, a major, not only shipping and trade, but as the consul mentioned, he was also working for the diplomatic mission with de Valera. And he brought... Archbishop Mannix across when he was touring the States, so he brought him along and was with him and made speeches with him. Um, 
So he, he and he was also involved in the relief funds. You know, they were trying to collect money for <coughs> independent prisoners and also for the reconstruction of Cork after the burning in December 1920. Okay, but he he was deported before the rising. Sorry, he was deported, he was deported before the rising. Yeah, and he slipped back in. And um, I found I um, I've been working on. He left a lot of papers, mm. which some of which we only recently discovered in Cork, and they're now in Cork archives. But. I was an archivist in my former being and I sorted and arranged them. And one of the first documents I came was came across was a, a letter from the head of the British military in Ireland warning him that we know you've slipped back into Cork, we're watching you and you better behave. But <laughs> right, I'm not yeah. sure what he did. He was never involved yeah. in the military side of things, you see. He was one of the founder members of the volunteers in Cork, but he was more in the sort of executive uh, part of that and he was obviously making speeches and that was annoying them at the time on, and under Dora the, the Defence of the Realm Act they deported him and he chose he had the choice to um, go to prison or go abroad and he went to America he was advised by the IDA in Cork to go to America and make contacts which he did and um, there's a lot of introductory mm. letters in the boxes in Cork as well, uh, you know, the American consul in Queenstown knew him very well and gave him introductions to quite a lot of businessmen. So I think it was that mm. experience. So he slipped back into the country in late December 1915. Now he's reported by the Dublin Metropolitan Police att- as an extremist attending meetings just before the rising. But he wasn't part of the rising. And as you know, Cork Cork stood down. They were ordered to stand down. So um, he got involved then in raising money f- and, and campaigning for the release of Cork uh, uh, Republican prisoners. But he, he was very, very heavily involved. That was his big thing was trade and industry. And he, like we have records now of him speaking all around the country, trying to encourage people to promote Irish industries. He, he spoke in Derry and Belfast and was instrumental in setting up the Limerick IDA and later the Dublin IDA. Mm. So he was, he was just one of those energetic guys who... Uh, also, his life. In fact, he later became uh, a barrister. Uh, he fell foul of the of the. He was pro-treaty entirely, but he fell foul of the government in late 1923 and lost his post there. He was later reinstated, but he didn't take it. He he went on to be a judge, but he fell foul of the Cosgrave government. And I think going from his letters, he was very opposed to the executions. Um, you know, he says there's been too much bloodshed, and that really hurt him. All of that, so. Mm. It might have been a factor, but there were other factors as well. Yeah, uh, and uh, we spoke to you before uh, uh, about uh, when he returned from America and uh, how he was part of a, a, a special delegation, mm. uh, a doll delegation that went to Belfast to report on uh, whether it was uh, a runner to look at, at a United Ireland or, or not. Yeah, and it, came was, back with it, some it, it was very much on the cards at that yeah. time. Mm. While partition was mm. there, of course it was established. Lord George wouldn't have gone into a peace negotiations without that. So partition was, you know, while our TDs were all in Man- the Mansion House, partition was driven through Westminster without much opposition. And that was, I think, one of the unfortunate sides of absenteeism. But the um, he, he was then sent before the treaty. You know, Ulster was a big factor and there was an element coming up in it as to whether, while the Parliament in Northern Ireland would be kept, whether eventually they would enter into a, some sort of a federal all-Ireland uh, parliament arrangement. So he was sent up to sort of suss out industries in Belfast as well to sort of do his own work uh, and uh, analysing the linen and the shipping industry, which he did, and he sent reports. Mm. But he also was asked to meet with um, 
businessmen, and of course at that time most of the major businessmen would have been unionists. He, he did meet, obviously, also with Catholic businessmen and with the Catholic bishop. But he spent over an interval of two months, he went up several times, spending sometimes a week there, meeting with very key um, industrialists and linen manufacturers, many of whom were members of the Ulster Unionist Council. Mm. And he brought back in his reports quite favourable and interesting attitudes which actually historians haven't really written about, even though his four reports are in the, the archives in the National mm, Library. Mm. But what we have found in his papers in Cork is far more information about that. In, in fact, the names of the people he met, uh, his notes on them, his own views on the thing. Now, what happened, and I think I said it to you before, while they, uh, how representative these guys were, we, 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 we'll never know, except that they were big industrialists. And they were urging them to stop the Belfast boycott. That was a very stupid thing. It wasn't helpful. But also to remove violence, to remove entirely the threat of violence. And they were sending a direct message to Sinn Féin at that time saying, remove the threat and we can start mm. to do business. And they were talking about having a conference in Dungannon in a year or two, that while immediately they mightn't be able to get into an All-Ireland Parliament, they could see in the future a peaceful sort of work going on between them. And they, they, they were very, very favourable. But when the treaty debate started in December, when he went back on the second and third times, he found the attitudes mm. sort of very downbeat and changing and sobering down, he called it, where they were very alarmed at the extremist speeches they had heard from some of the TDs in the door. Now, um, they itemised one or two of those and they're in his notes, but that really alarmed them and said, we're not going to be able to persuade Craig or anybody now, but we're going to have to defer this for a few years. And they asked him, when the provisional government, they, they, they said to him, mm. please, you know, get them to, to, to support this treaty. We see this treaty as good. So if they can support this treaty. So when the split happened then and de Valera walked out, they just more or less felt there was no more. And they asked him to send a message from Arthur Griffith, who was now the president, uh, and to have him send a personal message up to their parliament, to their government. Mm. So he did do that. So one of his last visits was bringing personally a message from Griffith to them. And he had it delivered to um, Minister John Andrews, who came back later that day with a reply from the Northern Ireland government, more or less saying, look, we're OK at the moment. Uh, we want to cooperate, of course, but we're not going to really be getting involved in anything with the South. And, you know, that that's actually in the history book. But yeah. the, he, if you... It might be in the history book, but in some ways, uh, when you recount uh, all of that uh, going back uh, to uh, the beginning of uh, the last century, you'd wonder how much has changed. Uh, mm. But a uh, hundred years on since his residency in America, you've been over in New York to celebrate that residency with yeah. Kieran Madden, who's uh, the current Consul General. Uh, did yeah. you feel like you were walking in his footsteps? Uh, because whilst some things haven't changed, the world has changed an awful lot. I mean, I take it uh, to get to New York in the first instance in 1915, he had to travel by boat. And that would oh, have taken yeah. many, All many trips weeks. Were by boat and they took yeah. several weeks. And yeah. in fact, mm. we have a collection of letters he wrote to his wife just towards the end of the Civil War when he made a visit to New York in May 1923. And he was trying to, there was trouble in the Ford plant and he was taking his holidays to go over and discuss that. And he was also worried about changes in the direct shipping service he had negotiated. Now, he was working at this... The motor car store. company, Henry Ford plant, is it? Yeah, the Henry yeah, Ford yeah, plant. Yeah, yeah, he had yeah, been, yeah. as I say, one of the four who brought that plant yeah. to Cork. Yeah. And um, very, he was very worried that there was trouble going on. And he went over to try and meet Henry Ford. He met his agent, but he also met quite a few others. But while he was there, um, uh, he 
on, on the ship he had written to his wife, our granny, and he was kind of giving his views on things and were hoping that the civil war was now over and hoping that there'd be no more executions. Mm. And he also was worried because he'd met about 30 emigrants stranded in Cove who the shipping line wouldn't allow get on. And he was pointing out to his wife that these guys had given up their jobs, had travelled all the way from the west of Ireland and had no money now, and he was going to take it up. And he took it up with his successor. But unfortunately, whatever he did there, um, the guy was annoyed and sent a report back to the department saying this more or less this wasn't his job and this guy was coming in telling him to do things. So that didn't help him. <laughs> Mm-hmm. later on when okay. he returned but yes he it is it's quite because he also left diaries and you can actually follow the meetings he had every day there um very interesting meetings with key irish americans and mm-hmm. americans and of course okay. dev was there all the time so I, I, I take it colin murphy's uh, your cousin is he Colin, yes, Colin yeah. wrote a very interesting mm. little play, yeah. actually, about the, it. The, the Forgotten Man. Yes, The yeah. Forgotten Man. And mm. it was really about, because he has been forgotten, I think because he lost his post at the end of in 1923 when the Free State was being mm. founded and he was very much on his uppers then. He had to find, he had a large family and he had to find employment. And he eventually found employment with the Dublin version of the IDA mm. and studied for the bar and went on to be a barrister okay. and a judge. But he, he kind of threw out his barrister work concentrated on trade cases and things like that. So that okay. was his big his big thing. But he's forgotten in that way. Okay. In that even recently, the Royal Irish Academy brought out a book on um, you know, Irish diplomats and consuls. And in the chapter to do with 1919 to 21, there isn't a mention of him. And this just defies the record. So I just, you know, well it's, it's... Yeah, well done, uh, because uh, you've remembered him today. The Forgotten yes. Man was how his grandson, Colin Murphy, uh, remembered Dermot. Uh, and thank you for remembering The Forgotten Man, your grandfather, yes. Jeremiah Dermot L. Fawcett, thank you with very us much. on the programme this morning. Thank you indeed. Yulita Clancy. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, apologies uh, once again uh, for the difficulty we had in making contact with uh, the Irish Human Rights Equality Commission, but I, I think we can speak with uh, Salome Bougwa now, who's a uh, commission member. A very good morning to you, Salome, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. As we mentioned earlier on, you'll be presenting in front of a, a UN committee on Tuesday on, and Wednesday of next week about uh, the Equality Commission's independent report and how our Ireland is living up to its international human rights obligations to combat and eliminate racial discrimination. And uh, I take it that there's a, a lot to talk about and a lot to do as yet, given that there's uh, 155 recommendations for improvement. Yes, yes. And thank you. And again, I want to apologize because uh, my phone actually did not show your sure, call sure. coming earlier. So just to say that, you know, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission is an independent national human rights institution which is actually credited by the United Nations. The Commission has a statutory mandate to protect and promote human rights and equality and to encourage the development of a culture for respect for human rights. Um, so we have, like you have said, over 150 uh, recommendations. Mm. This convention, which is the Convention on Elimination of Racial Discrimination, said in another way, was actually signed by... Uh, Ireland adopted this um, convention in 2000. And by signing, they actually have uh, an international responsibility under the convention to ensure that people, whatever their background is, are not subjected to racial discrimination. So the state will appear before the committee next week, as you have said, um, first time actually since 2011, because they appeared again in 2011, uh, to face the formal examination on how it is meeting those human rights obligations. 
that they signed in 2000. Tell me a little bit about uh, political discourse, because this is an issue that is of concern to you. I mentioned earlier on that the Taunish to Simon Coveney uh, was making comment on this yesterday, and he said that politicians and election candidates need to be pulled up on far-right comments which incite hatred. Uh, the report uh, that you've published uh, makes note of comments made by candidates and politicians, Peter Casey and what he said uh, about travellers in the presidential election and Noel Grealish, uh, independent TD in Galway, and comments that he made about African economic migrants. You are very right. The commission is actually very concerned of uh, the whole uh, hate speech and hate crime. And the commission has alerted the UN in this report, which will be representing of our concern about political discourse in Ireland at local and national level. We have actually cited also the recent examples like you're giving at the same time. You know, when people are seeking election for public office, uh, in you know, places, uh, places of high obligation, uh, individual has to show leadership and respect for human rights uh, and dignity for, for everyone. We must also make clear to our political leaders in Ireland that we have positively expat, we, we expect from them, as well as highlighting the things we never want to become normalized in this country. Mm. So actually what the commission is um, like uh, suggesting is that we are recommending that the, the state has code of conduct for public officials and people who are going, you know, candidates who are going forward for elections that should prohibit the, the prejudicial and discriminatory discourse. The problem um, is that we don't do that, uh, in that uh, politicians can, to all intents and purposes, say what they wish unless they break existing laws, but there's no specific hate crime legislation. When people have freedom of speech, you know, and, and we actually talk about that, um, we should also challenge ideas that largely are based on ignorance, prejudice, and related intolerance, because actually this pushes um, hate, you know, and actually they sell the whole ideas of, of hate. So when they would actually have that freedom of speech and to speak the way they would want, they also have to be careful, because they are going out there as, as leaders for everyone, not just for a few people out there. And when they say things that incite hatred and pushes actually people who experience discrimination into further um, hatred, it, it's actually very wrong. And mm. that's why we are really recommending that kind of conduct is put uh, to be able to uh, at least protect people that experience um, all, all the challenges that they experience after these kind of statements are made by people who are going for public offices. So we are, pros- we are proposing on that. We have also proposed previously uh, to the state uh, to come up with the National Electoral Commission uh, which should be mandated actually to upholding the standard into the political discourse. And we are hoping and that, 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 you know, over, this that matter will be looked uh, very soon, you know, by the state mm. in itself. So just explain that, that it would act as a watchdog, is it, to oversee, uh, to police, if you like, uh, what people are, are saying and to pull them up if uh, they step out of line. I don't think that is actually a problem, and it's problematic. The state in itself, like I have said, they have signed to protect people. In 2000, they signed to the convention. And this convention actually clearly states on what should, uh, what should appear, you know, in the state when the, the, the state is protecting its people from incitement to hatred, or which is actually used to do hate speech or anything like that. So I don't think it's any, we don't think as a commission that it's, it's anything that has been asked of extraordinary, but it's actually to protect human rights of people and people who are at a vulnerable situation of having to deal with the, 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 the incitement that they, the hatred that actually they will experience because of this kind of incitement from the politicians. This is uh, 
a relatively new thing in this country, isn't it? I don't think it's new because uh, Ireland has always had, you know, these issues going on. We've had huge problems with tra- the traveling community. Mm. The issues of racism and discrimination, they didn't start with the migrants coming into the country. Mm. It has been there with our own travelers. And although the commission is happy that uh, the travelers have been recognized, for example, as an ethnic minority group, travelers is one of the groups that actually continue to experience oh, racism yeah. and discrimination. Well, and you can actually cite it from the comments that you mentioned earlier. Even with the travellers, I think, Salome, it is a, a, a relatively new problem in that uh, migration is a, a very new problem, but uh, the problems with travellers, if you like, are, are relatively new. Maybe uh, since uh, the 1970s, uh, there's been the type of discrimination uh, that we understand uh, to be there against travellers now, but I, I think uh, there was a good relationship. That Certainly, if you go back to the 50s, let's say, uh, when uh, the travellers were tinkers uh, because they used to work with tin. Uh, uh, but uh, I think the settled community and uh, the travelling community had a, a good relationship back then. I, I, I actually don't know about that, mm. but uh, again, we are living in the 21st century, and mm. actually in the 1950s, uh, Ireland has not signed to, the, to this convention. We have now the convention signed and adopted by Ireland that they will uphold the rights of, of people, you mm. know, and that they will protect people regardless of the ethnic group or wherever they are coming from. Mm. And so the state should actually uphold these rights to be able to protect the most mm. vulnerable. And there will be the travellers, people of African mm. descent, mm the Roma, and all those groups here who are at a very vulnerable situation. Mm. So the, 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 the actually the, the commission is calling for, you know, a legal framework, comprehensive regulatory okay. framework to be put into place. Yeah. I guess it's what I'm hoping, I, I, I'm, sorry to, speech. I'm sorry to cut across here, I, I guess what I'm hoping is that it is a relatively new phenomenon, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe uh, it's uh, something uh, that uh, has existed a long time. But if it is a relatively new phenomenon, is it changed? Is it possible to change the way people think? Uh, or uh, is it like other countries uh, where uh, it is part and parcel of life uh, where people don't accept other people? I wouldn't say. Actually, I still do not uh, accept that this uh, whole issue of racism and discrimination is a new thing. You know, mm. and uh, if we go back to the to, to you know to our mandate as a, a commission, you know, we have what we call the nine grounds that you cannot discriminate. Yes. Mm. Uh, so it, it's not that you know people would be discriminated only because, uh, for example, they are travellers, they are migrants. We also have people with the disability. Mm. Um, we have LGBTQ as well. Mm. So I, I wouldn't call it a new thing. It's only that even if the, the society is changing in its demographic, the society also has to change in the way it thinks and embrace diversity rather than actually in, in a way of um, pushing a vulnerable group into more vulnerability by the way we carry on, you know, the way we speak and the way we relate to other people. Mm-hmm. And where we are actually calling for, for, for leadership, both in political and in, institution broadly, we are also taking it that everybody should have the responsibility to be able to uh, to combat racial discrimination, you know, on how we relate with the people and what we say, and actually ensuring that we all take responsibility to em- embrace diversity and appreciate, and, and appreciate people and treat them with respect and dignity. Okay, well, you'll be representing us in Geneva next week. Uh, we'll look forward to, to hearing what you have to say and learning from you, and uh, perhaps uh, we can uh, speak to you after we hear uh, from uh, the Commission and their comments and response to you as well after that. Thank you. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Thank you very much indeed for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Salome Bougwa. 
This weekend, uh, the Gardaí launch uh, their Christmas and uh, New Year road safety campaign. It'll run over six weeks and Gardaí say they'll be focusing especially on people driving intoxicated with checkpoints to detect if you're under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Uh, They'll also have special emphasis on detecting people who are dangerously overtaking cyclists and on unaccompanied learner drivers. Uh, But it coincides, of course, uh, with uh, the annual message from uh, the Road Safety Authority which calls on everybody to be responsible not just at Christmas but all year round but indeed as we go into this festive time of uh, the year to think road safety. Brian Farrell, Communications Manager with uh, the RSA, the Road Safety Authority of Ireland is on the line. A very good morning to you Brian and uh, thanks for joining us. I suppose at this time of the year uh, we usually talk about uh, the number of fatalities on the roads but the focus of your campaign this year is on life changing incidents uh, and I suppose a lot of people would have seen uh, the impact of road accidents on individuals on television last night. Uh, people who have certainly had their lives change and uh, beyond any shadow of a doubt. Why, why the focus on the accidents rather than the fatalities this year? Yeah I, and I suppose it's because we, we, we tend to forget that not everyone who survives a crash you know, goes back to lead a normal life um, some people do suffer terrible injuries, um, serious injuries that um, mean they have to learn, you know, how to live a new way of life um, because of those injuries. Um, so really it was about trying to shine a light on a part of road safety that we don't talk about an awful lot. And people who are the survivors who suffer serious injuries tend to be the forgotten people in all of this. And of course, they are real consequences to our behaviour on the roads. And we wanted to, to, to focus um, uh, on serious injuries and, and raise awareness of this. And, and that's why we went out to the National Rehabilitation Hospital in Dunleary, where, the, where they're doing amazing work treating people who, who, who tend to be transferred or referred from the Beaumont Hospital if they've suffered a serious head injury or from the Matter Hospital, for example, if they've suffered a, a spinal injury or even lo- and loss of limbs. So we were talking to some of the patients there and, and really, Michael, it was, it was a chance for, for, for them to tell their story, their lived mm. experience, their life experience, because they told it better than, than any, in, in a way that we could never do so. And, and to, to remind people that, you know, you know is, it, is it a case of there are worse things than death out there? Uh, after a crash, and that is being, you know, in in, mm. in a serious injury that completely and utterly transforms your your, your life. Mm. Uh, and and uh, as as Professor Mark Delargy, who, who is um, one of the senior consultants out there, described, you know, the hospital's job is to try and salvage uh, your life after uh, a serious injury from from being in a collision. It's a, a terrible reality. Uh, were the people who spoke publicly willing to do that uh, or did they need convincing? It's amazing how, and, and the only word to describe mm. it is the, the bravery, the, the, the exceptional courage that these individuals have in coming forward. And of course, one of those individuals is, is, is um, uh, Siobhan O'Brien from Dundalk. Uh, who fronted our TV advertising campaign, Crash Lives, way back in 2010. And she was there yesterday to talk about, you know, the, you know, years later, you know, what the effects of the serious injury were still having on her life. And she says it has still, you know, made a profound difference to her life and, and, and the way she lives her life. I mean, 
you know, one minute she was preparing to, to graduate from college and the next minute she's uh, she's dealing with a serious brain injury and, and, and the consequences of that and, uh, you know, confined to a wheelchair as well. We also heard from Laura Doherty, who is a doctor in the Matter Hospital and uh, was traveling, uh, I think, over to over to the West uh, for a job interview. And she reckons it was fatigue that was a factor in her collision. And uh, as a result of the crash that she was involved in, has suffered a, a brain injury, suffers from serious uh, short-term memory loss and can c- cannot practice as a doctor again and in a sense she also she described it as you know grieving she's still grieving for the person that was mm. um and she's a different life now she's a road safety advocate and is doing tremendous work visiting schools and has helped us develop our junior cert uh, uh program that's that's now taught in schools to, to 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 teach road safety but she does say that you know she has a different life now mm. as a result of the injuries she sustained and she wants us to understand that you know you know, road deaths are just the tip of the iceberg. You know, there are yeah. three and a half thousand people were seriously injured between um, 2014 yeah. and 2017. That, that's almost six times the number of people who were killed. No, it's incredible. And I'm sure most people uh, listening to us uh, at some stage have passed by a crash scene and seen uh, terrible carnage and then wondered why they didn't hear anything about it later on the news. It's not that it wasn't news. It was the most significant news in the lives of the people who were involved in it. But perhaps... They didn't die. Their lives changed irreparably. Uh, And sometimes people end up paraplegic or extremely brain damaged or both. Uh, And uh, this is, uh, I suppose, uh, the message that those people uh, who experienced that, who spoke uh, on behalf of this campaign, wanted to get out to other people. uh, Please don't end up like me. And we mustn't forget Mm. their families as well. Absolutely. Very brave. On their families Mm. as well Mm. and the community and the support that's required to, to, to look after these individuals as they try to repair their lives and, and find a new way of living because, as I said, they can't go back to the lives they had before. And we want people to understand those are real consequences out there, um, real consequences out there too. Not everybody walks away from a crash. Mm, yeah. I suppose uh, if you can't walk away, you've a broken leg or something, uh, you'll remember it for a long time, but it could be an awful lot worse uh, and it doesn't need to be a fatality, as you said. Uh, I think the unfortunate reality of it, uh, Brian, is uh, that sometimes uh, people will consider it would have been better had they died as a, a result yeah. of the crash. That's the terrible reality of it. You're right. Pin, mm-hmm. Pins and plates can replace broken yeah. bones. But you know, I mean, if, if, if you suffer a serious brain injury, an acquired brain injury, or if you're looking at spinal damage, if you're looking at an amputation, I mean, th- there are things that you can, can never be repaired. And, okay. And are lifelong That's the message uh, from this weekend onwards. Uh, the Gardaí will be there policing uh, the behaviour of all of us. We leave it there for the moment, though, Brian, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us as always. Brian Farrell, Communications Manager with uh, the RSA, the Road Safety Authority, brings our programme to its conclusion today, indeed for this week. I hope you have a lovely weekend and God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie 
so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.